The classic story always begins with once upon a time. We all have stories, every single one of us. From the depressed billionaire to the ecstatic prisoner. From the highest of the high to the lowest of the low, we all have stories. Our stories can inspire, instruct, uplift, and warn others. Exploring the world for the greatest stories of all time. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Aaron O'Dowd Show. The Aaron O'Dowd Show. Our soul is the screen upon which we project our dreams. What's your story? Hello and welcome. On today's show, we have Andrea Cullen. She is a nutritional therapist, a pharmacist, senior associate member of the Royal Society of Medicine and many more. Hello and welcome to the show, Andrea. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. While recording, we're sitting in your clinic, which have crystals, herbs, aromatherapy, and the PMF machine. Where did it all start? A journey and a curiosity, I guess. Um, and just wanting to add more and more tools to help people. And a lot of it is intuitive, uh, and some of it is, even for me personally, I'm trying to create a space that kind of gets a jump start ahead so that people feel ready to heal and that hopefully the environment can achieve some of that by creating a nice space for people. Um, It seems to work. I think people say and comment that they feel really good in here. So, and while you were growing up, uh, did you were you interested in sports and healing and all that kind of stuff, or did that kind of venture during your journey over over a while? I've always loved being outside. My family is a very thinking family, a very active and a very doing family. So the more spiritual side of things, the why you were out doing things, never really would have come to the fore. But for me, I always would have been running off down the fields amongst the nothing, the animals, nature. And my dad would have taken us on walks as kids and shown us, you know, what the hazel was, what the slow was, what the blackberries were, you know, bird identifications. And my grandparents were very simple living with a lot of animals, chickens and ducks. And no, they didn't have ducks, they had geese, um, rescue donkeys, dogs. So I was always surrounded by nature. It was perfect as a childhood start. Um, and sport was a big part of what we did. My parents uh, and my mom, who, who drove this, wanted for us to experience lots and lots of things so that then we could make decisions further on about what we wanted to do. So we were never driven into just one sport. We were always encouraged. But once we decided to commit to something, there was sort of an unwritten contract there that you have to follow this through for a while before you can decide to quit. In other words, she wanted us to know enough before we decided that it was too hard. And I remember that with the piano. (laughs) I remember thinking, this is too hard. And mom was like, well, you're in now, so you need to follow this through until you're at least at a skill level where you know that you you don't like it. And it was was the best thing that she did because it, it gave us follow through. But there was never pressure on us. There was encouragement to perform. Everyone in my family is very good, so there kind of was always this sort of level of competition that drove us on and I'm the only girl with two brothers so I kind of felt it had to fight like a boy sometimes (laughs) (laughs) but I gave a good fight (laughs) 
So we were active, really active kids, um, curious, loved doing things. And I think that stayed with me. Did that kind of teach you to be who you are at that stage? I think there was aspects of myself that I probably didn't understand, that I probably had a strong sense around energy, but didn't really know. And if I look back, the time now I realize I was highly sensitive to it would have been in my grandparents' house, that there was parts of it that just freaked me out I felt there was stuff going on and I would just like run along the passageway around those spots rather than ask what is this actually I don't think I was even thinking I was just aware and I would just move on to the next if that makes sense but now I look back and now I understand the history of my grandparents house I know that I I was very sensitive to things and as a child but it's sort of the understanding came much much later with a lot of difficulties in the middle that now, with self-awareness, I realized I was meant to go through so that I could help people when they're on that journey and struggling a little bit. You finished high school or secondary school and you were going to go on to college or university. Did you know what you were going to do at the time? I always wanted to, quote, make a difference. You know when you do aptitude tests mm-hmm. and they come out with a conclusive, this is what you should do? No one could tell me because I would kind of do mark well across the board I was good at languages I was good at history I was good at geography I was good at maths I was good at the sciences I was good at accounting and I think that was just my nature if I applied myself to something I was a good learner the schooling system means if you're good at remembering things you'll strike a good mark so it's not really a true maybe if there was different ways that we were taught it would have become apparent a lot earlier the right um, route for me but I knew I always wanted to make a difference and animals would have drawn me first um, and I did transition year in school which gave me the opportunity to do some veterinary work experience and those were the days when it was big animals outdoors you needed a lot of physical strength you needed a lot of cold tolerance which is if anyone knows me I don't have and I realized quick enough that I wasn't fit for that role pulling calves out of cows being out in the in the depths of winter you know I wasn't up to that um, and I decided I'll keep animals in my life always but maybe there's a different route for me so that was the medical realm and just through a series of choices and decisions um, I ended up studying pharmacy so that was an interesting journey. <laughs> Why pharmacy? Mom wanted to open my eyes to the reality of a life working in medicine which would have been challenging and she encouraged me to speak to my family GP and to, I can't remember if I spoke to some pharmacists. I'd never put myself in a pharmacy before I started university, but it, it was felt that pharmacy would give me a life of greater freedom. You know, if I decided to drop out and have a family, you could still work time, whereas it's a little bit more challenging. I feel in medicine, you study for a long time, you go through a very, very hard system, and then it's almost like a lot of people then end up in a family role and quitting medicine completely and mom saw and encouraged me to just explore different options with a view to further down the line so it was for that reason that I did pharmacy and definitely there is times when I've felt to myself oh gosh what if I had done medicine you know would I, would I have been in a better place for helping people and I think ultimately I would still be where I am now I would have had better diagnostic skills perhaps and hands-on, but I do still try and make up for that. But with pharmacy, it gave me a different way of thinking, which really aids my work also. So I think I'd still be here. Where did you, was it Ireland or the United Kingdom you studied? I went away. So I studied in Cardiff. I had that decision when I was 18. I could have stayed here and continued and gone to Trinity College. And I also had got myself an admission into Cardiff 
and I decided to go farther. I think there was a part of me that just wanted to spread my wings to be in a, in a university that was bigger, had a bigger school of pharmacy, wasn't so small and with pharmacy back then I think there was less than 50 in the class, it would have been all straight A students and I, I kind of didn't want to end up in the, the nerd school, I, I wanted to go out and see life. Now I found it hard when I got out there to see life and to be so far away but it was part of the journey and I think I've always been driven by a very strong radar even though I may not always have felt like a very strong person. There's always been a sense of this is the right decision for me that always guided me even if it took me through some very hard lessons um, and now when you get to further down the line you look back and you think yeah that made sense and I learned that there and I learned that there so no regrets but it was quite a hard route going so far away. Going abroad was it your first time going out? No so when I was 13 I had spent time on my own with a family in France and later then when I was 16. In transition year, I spent three months in a school in France, in a different area, this time over in the southeast. And then when I was in my leaving cert year, was it leaving cert year or 17, 18, I spent another two weeks in Paris in school. So I had been away before. While you're studying Cardiff, do you get to explore and discover yourself or was it kind of just pure pharmacy work and study and so on? I think I was quite overwhelmed by it all. I get a sense of sadness now when I look back because I realize that I was quite lonely. But when there, I just went day by day and made the most of everything. Britain is a little bit different to Ireland. There wasn't anyone there, I think is the right word to say. My family were here in Ireland. So in university, in the weekend, everyone would sort of disappear home to their families or their boyfriends. And no one would ever go, well, what are you doing, Andrea? (laughs) You know, do you want to come out for dinner? We know you only have a bicycle. There was never really that question, so I would just go out either on my bike or on foot and spend hours sort of wandering around Cardiff or I'd cycle up into the hills. There was a beautiful fairy tale castle outside of Castle Cock, outside of Cardiff, and so I'd kind of keep busy and active and doing things. I suppose I used to numb myself out, so I started to hit some issues with my eating and over-exercise. And I think that was my way of not feeling emotions. I definitely started to put sort of coping skills in place that may not have benefited me. However, and as I tell my clients, when we put in coping mechanisms, sometimes they're the best that we have and we know. Um, But I was a little bit lonely there. But at the same time, I threw myself into college. I threw myself into swimming. I played a bit of hockey. I went to the gym. I made friends. I tried to look around Cardiff as much as possible. I was limited to a bicycle, but that didn't stop me. <laughs> so I used to come home from the shops and I, I was the master of balancing about four bags on the front of my handlebars. <laughs> and I'd wander down. There's an amazing market in Cardiff and I'd, you know, I'd come home with a 10 pounds worth of bags full of stuff from the market because I was able to cook and take care of myself. I did enjoy that. You mentioned about huge problems with eating and so on. Did you discover that time or did it become a pop-up issue for you? They started when I was younger. So when I was 14, 15, I... It's just some silly thing with your friends where suddenly you feel you need to conform and lose weight and three of you go on a diet and, of course, the perfectionists in the group become excellent at it and you find yourself down a dark hole of an eating disorder. So 
I had anorexia, which ended me up in hospital, which was an event that marks my memories because the medical system did not know how to care for and nurture someone back then with issues like that. I don't know if they're actually much better. There's many times in my life I've had a little bit of a flirtatious dance with the other side of the medical system, which has been really good for me now in my experience and the way I care for people, but it was, it was very difficult. Never wanted to be there. I was dumbing down my feelings to the enormous sensitivity that I have to people in life. And I think it became something that I subconsciously did. You don't eat. You know that feeling when you finish a training session and you're absolutely starving, you can't even think. (laughs) (laughs) So I was putting myself in that place of not feeling or thinking without knowing why I was actually doing it and not ever really wanting to be there. So I was a very strange eating disorder patient because I was constantly researching how I could get myself better rather than how I could be better at having an eating disorder, which tends to be the norm. Yeah, it was a journey. I think I really only ever fully kicked it later on in life with the more I understood myself. But I did that on my own. And I'm proud of it, but it, it taught me a lot. Over those years you're struggling with this, did you find ways of hiding it or controlling it? Or did you eventually say, okay, this is what I'm going to do to get it to a point where you kind of understood the full aspect of it? The thing with an eating disorder is it's quite visible. So people worry. Uh, teachers start to notice and worry, your friends start to start to notice and worry and of course your parents are out of their mind and that creates an imbalance in the family and I never ever wanted for any of that so I could kind of see what was happening but at the same time there was a part of me that was just trying to become invisible and I think that's what it was all about I, I wanted to no longer feel, I didn't want to be seen, I didn't want to upset anybody I felt a lot of guilt at the same time because it was it was hurting other people and I didn't want for that. So you're studying to become a pharmacist and you do your number of years and become a pharmacist. What happened after that? Yeah, so you go into the system and you get spat out the other end and you wear a fancy hat and you throw it in the air and you have a graduation. And then you're like, whoa, so you have to do a year as a pre-registration, which means we had to go through an interview process to find a company that would take us on and a tutor that would take us on within that. So you did your interviews with Boots and there was Hills and Lloyds and there was some other ones. So this this was in England. They were terrifying. Remember, you know, having to do this interview and I think the universe worked it out because it gave me the company that I needed. Even though you have some letdowns with other companies, I remember saying to my dad, I have to apply for these things. Where am I going to go? I don't know England at all. And dad would just say, go south. The weather's good. And I'm like, okay, we'll fill in for the south. (laughs) The weather's good. So I ended up getting accepted by Hills Pharmacy, who very early into my career with them took over Lloyd's and became Lloyd's Pharmacy, which is a massive company then under a German company called AAH. And my tutor was called John, John Green. And he had a pharmacy in this place called Forest Row, which is in Sussex. Forest Row is a very, very interesting place. It's kind of like the capital of weirdness in the south of England. That's how people would describe it, but when you understand it, it's not. So we would have had Steiner schools. It was very alternative. There was a lot of homeopathy and alternative practices coming out from that area. That made it really, really interesting, and it was a very wealthy area. So we had a couple of kings and their wives from various Middle Eastern countries. But the hilarious thing was on my first day, so you're in your little outfit that you've got with what money you have out of college, you have your shiny name badge and you're serving at the till. 
And this lady looked at me and she, she heard my accent and she's like, oh, you're Irish. I know some Cullens from Ireland. I'm like, oh, you know, not thinking it's going to go anywhere. Yeah, William Cullen. And I'm like, that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so this lady, Paget von Wiedel, had come from Newport and had moved back to England with her daughters. And so on my first day, I met someone from home, which was nice. I think things were always looking out for me. So I spent a year working in Forest Row and it was... I learned a lot, um, and then after that year, you sit a big exam to become a pharmacist, and then you're a pharmacist. And because I did well, and I was very conscientious, because I, I just wanted to do the best at everything that I did, I was very lucky, and I got given a job straight away managing a store. So at 22, I was running a pharmacy in a village called Ringmer, which is outside Brighton in Sussex. It was like your typical little country village in England and you had your cricket green and you had your shops and you had your vegetable shop and your butcher shop and your shop shop and everyone just called me the chemist lady. But they could, none of them could understand how, how young I was. And there were some really cool characters. We had one gentleman, no one liked him. He, he, he was always in really, really bad form. But I was always a very observant person so I would notice things about people which would then open doors for how you can open up to someone and talk to them and I used to have to d deliver his oxygen tanks uh, might have been once a month and so I would get to know him and it became very clear why he was not always in the best of form because he had been a prisoner of war in a Japanese war camp you know there was characters that you met we also had another lady and she was like mrs bouquet i don't know if you've, you've ever watched mm, that no. tv show called keeping up appearances if you google her <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was fun so i managed that store for might have been a year it was really hard work the companies really really worked you hard and then i would have done stints of locuming where you weren't attached to any one pharmacy and you went in for lots of other companies that took you into lots of different stores all around the area and even some companies would offer you you know come down to say much farther afield for two weeks and we'll put you up and just work for our stores so I got to travel a bit and see a bit of the south of England and then I would go back and I'd manage different places and the last place I managed in England um, which was with Lloyd's again was in Hazelmere and we had a very big store and they trusted in my knowledge and desire to run a different pharmacy so they gave me a big budget to create an alternative health store so as part of the the pharmacy we had effectively a health store with vitamins and supplements and health foods and the store was labeled a concept store to see if this would work and I pulled in you know m massive profits because it worked we did diagnostic testing we did blood pressure testing food allergy testing I spent a lot more time talking to customers than would have been normal so that taught me a lot and then I managed to convince the company to sponsor me to go back and study nutrition uh, so that worked out really well for me and I started back in college again <laughs> <laughs> people think that a pharmacist is in making drugs and you're, you're saying that you you set up a health food shop and you did all this is that actually true or no before we would have done a lot more of what was called extemporaneous dispensing which would have been say a dermatologist sending in a prescription for a cream that didn't exist so you would have had to have mixed one cream with another cream mostly it's you get a prescription you read the prescription you put it through the computer you pop a label out you stick it on the box you make sure the right thing is in there and you dispense it out to the person so all of that amazing knowledge that you're given in university you don't get huge opportunities to use it even down to drug interactions the computer does it all for you 
if it's a very busy pharmacy, you're responsible for that last check on every box that goes out with a label on it. So you really are a focused, concentrated person just making sure everything matches to go out and you don't have as much time for actually counselling the patient, doing a double check on their medication. And this should happen. So the doctors really are more in in that realm. But I was fortunate in, in the two places that I managed I had a very good relationship with the dispensing doctors and the surgeries, so I would give them advice regarding patients. I would give advice to the nursing homes. I would go in and do nursing home visits as well, which was, was good fun. And then the National Health Service in England started to encourage this type of practice, so pharmacists got paid for doing this type of work. It's a little bit different here in Ireland, but hopefully we'll become more active in that realm. But for me, I started to see signs that I wasn't happy within that role because I felt that I wasn't really helping people. I wasn't enabling them back to health. I was just giving them their medication. And the side of it that intrigued me was more health and wellness. So that was kind of what prompted me. There was a distinct moment in time. I think there always is when you make changes in your life where a patient was in talking to me and he had leukemia and he was talking to me about what he was doing with his diet and some supplements. And I thought, that's it. I now have to learn more. So I started down the, the road then of exploring where to go to college or university to study further. How did you get involved in the senior associate member of the Royal Society of Medicine? I think there is a relationship between the Nutrition in England and the Royal Society of Medicine where I can then be involved with them and then partake in their lectures and different things. It's not as fancy as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound fancy. So you're part of this health food store in the in UK. Did this kind of set you up for some of the, the diagnostic companies you work with today and, and so on or not? It mostly put me in touch with a lot of health companies. So I became... A very keen eye on looking at the formulation and the quality of supplements. Um, Pharmacy teaches you very well in that respect. If someone comes in with a supplement, I want to see it. I want to see what company has made it. I want to see the procedures that they've used, the format of the nutrients in there. And pharmacy was a very good training for that. And I think pharmacists, if they educated themselves better regarding vitamins and supplements, would be in a really strong position to give better advice instead of just sort of having a certain numbers of brands on the shelf. Um, with diagnostic companies, a couple, the food allergy testing, those came a little bit later as I started to go down the road of functional medicine. Did you study nutrition before functional medicine or opposite? Yeah, I studied it first. So I went to a college in England. It was a three-year part-time course. So I continued to work as a pharmacist and that gave me a nutrition diploma. And then when I had that, I actually moved back to Ireland. Okay, um, what is functional medicine? It's a system of trying to figure out all the reasons behind why someone is sick Um, and then going from there as opposed to the medical approach which seems to base more around a diagnosis and a treatment. Um, I want to look further back than the diagnosis and figure out all the trigger factors that led to a patient being there. So essentially it's looking at the function of the body and all of the systems and where the breakdown happens and how all of that links in to an ultimate condition. Um, so generally, with any condition, what we would see from a functional medicine basis is that well, it's multifactorial, always. It's, it's never really that simple. So you're looking at the person, the environment, their lifestyle, their diet, the triggers, um, which could be g- genetics, 
which is about the person, or it could be something from the environment, whether it's toxicity or viruses or bacteria. Um, emotions are going to come into it too, and stress, and then you just sort of tie them all up. And I guess from where I'm standing and where a functional a good functional medicine practitioner is standing, we try to look at what's the most important thing to start with and then start peeling away at addressing this and then looking at what's left and then addressing that. And you sort of have to pick somewhere to start. So we generally will start with what we feel is the biggest clue to where it all went wrong. Even though we may be aware that there's several things going on at once, you have to start somewhere and at a rate that is manageable and practical for the patient. And generally using that main approach will address many things. So then you keep working and chipping away on what's left and then what's left. And so it does require the patient to trust you that it's going to be a journey. And there isn't just one pill or tablet that's going to heal them. Um, there's work involved on my part and on their part. And the more work they put in, the more they get out. How, how are you able to identify where to start? So what I will do, depending on the patient, the ideal is that I will get them to fill in a big questionnaire for me. I will get so all of their health history um, and where, where they were and where they are. I'll get them to complete a timeline from prenatal to current with anything that they feel is important regarding health, traumas, triggers, their birth, whether they were breastfed, etc., etc. I'll get them to plot that all out on a timeline um, I'll get them to complete a food diary and we'll get any any historical test results back. I will look at everything and I'll sort of create a big mind map of it that puts all the information in one place that sort of works for me. It's a bit like a spider web. And then I'll look at it all and I will go with instincts um, and gut feeling about where I should start. So I'm sort of using experience, gut instinct, science about how you do it to arrive to well where do we start now that takes a lot of time and not everyone wants to invest in that full consultation so for some patients it's it's more uh, just a one-on-one -on -one consultation where I try and pull everything out of them <laughs> as, as much as possible to to lead me to where we need to start one thing is very interesting and in whether the patient is writing it or speaking it and that is their own use of words and how they describe their issues and I will listen and pay attention to their intuitions and the things that seem important for them because I feel that is always guiding us in the right direction. I think within us there is always an innate ability to heal and an instinct about what's going wrong. Um, it's just that most of us need the experience of someone who understands the body and medicine and complementary medicine to, to really guide that but I think the patient is the most important part of the whole puzzle, them, their experience, what they're feeling and going through and where they want to go, how hard they want to work on it and whether they're actually ready to heal. So there's a lot of non-science within what I just said, but it's all guided by science at the same time, if, if that makes sense. How are you able to combine the complementary and the medical world together? Easily. In my mind... They all work hand in hand. Why is it easy for me? It's probably because I have a medical background. So I understand the science. I understand the medical world. I understand the pharmaceutical world. And it's there for a reason and a purpose. And then we have the complementary world, which is how it would be better described rather than alternative, because we need to all be working together and pulling from the pot of 
expertise, whether it's a doctor, an acupuncturist, a Reiki healer, um, someone like me who study nutrition and functional medicine, we all have skills to provide to help a patient. And so sometimes I'm actually only acting as one person on the wheel. If I feel there's someone more appropriate than me for that patient, I will send them in that direction. If I feel herbs are right, I will go down that route. If I feel we need to use medicine, so everything needs to work together. There was a very interesting um, article I read actually recently where a functional medicine practitioner was looking at the research of cancer patients and their use of medicine and their outcome and their use of what they were describing as alternative medicine and their outcome, or whether they chose complementary, which was the medicine, and support from complementary therapies. And all patients had the best outcome when they utilized all approaches rather than one or the other. So it's not an us versus them. It's a case of what is going to help this patient the most and how can we support that. So I think I'm quite good at trying to jump in between the boxes. There shouldn't really be boxes the whole world of online is very much one pitched against the other and there is huge heat involved in backing up one story of whether they sit on one fence or the other. But I think ultimately a good therapist should be able to see it from a broader perspective where it's about the patient and not our beliefs. So we need to find at every point what's best for the patient and what's going to work for them and what they believe in. Because if a patient doesn't believe in herbs, it's unlikely that they're going to work if a patient doesn't believe in medicine. That's going to be limited too. So I think we need to educate and empower patients and pull out of them what the best course or journey for them is on their healing journey. And that's hard because you have to step past yourself then and your beliefs and be prepared to have them shattered at every point, which happens, which means you're on a never, ever ending carousel of continual learning, which can get tiring. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, it's it's not about me and my opinion. And that's a hard one because there's always going to be times when I get sucked into my opinion and I want to be right because we all attach our identity into these things. But I have to leave that aside as much as possible. It's hard to do. It gets easier, I think, as you get older. And that's one thing that is good about getting older. I think you get a big dose of perspective and you have your mind blasted open many, many times and you're, you're wrong a lot and you're, you're right sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that leads you to learn. And I think if you only hold on to what you learn at the start and that becomes the word, I think you're going to be very limited. And I think that's an issue often in, in any therapy, but especially the medical system where there's so little time to keep up with how much research is out there in, in all realms. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have ended up leaving pharmacy and then studied nutrition and then going from nutrition to functional medicine and then going from functional medicine to an absolute fascination about what drives people, you know, about the person, the emotions. So that's because at many points along the way, my belief system hasn't worked. You know, medicine doesn't heal everyone. Nutrition isn't the only thing. Functional medicine isn't the only thing. Supplements isn't the only thing. And it's only through seeing that that you learn that you've, you've just got to keep diving in and learning more and more guided by each patient. When someone comes into you new and you've all the information, where do you have like a, a roadmap or how do you know which is the best route to begin? I used to have a roadmap. And maybe that roadmap was necessary at the start because you have to start somewhere but I've learned that there's just too much information out there. Like it's 
overwhelming. Like you've seen my library. There's I just have books, more books than I can even consume because I've always been driven to want to, you know, what is the perfect way of getting this right? You know, how do you fix the gut? How do you fix the thyroid? How do you fix the adrenals? But every time that's been blown apart because each patient is different, their unique circumstances are different. So I guess it started with a roadmap and now it's more fluid. And perhaps that comes with experience where, you know, I'll constantly be doing the research. But with every patient, I'll start with a blank page and I'll sort of pull out of my head and my heart what is going to be the right way for them as opposed to doing it verbatim based on like, all of the roadmaps are based on someone's opinion. But that person who had the opinion and wrote that roadmap, they never met my patient. So I have to try and do the best for each patient. It's like for some, their guts might be a mess. And I'll think, oh man, we need to test their guts. They've got a parasite. They're showing all the symptoms of post-infectious IBS. We need to do this. And then I'll take a step back and I'll think, well, they're actually really stressed. Their dad died. Their dog died. They lost a job. It could be several things piled up and their gut is their way uh, you know their body's way of effectively detoxifying and overwhelm of emotions so I'll go down that route and generally when you do let intuition come in or that something that seems to come from the sky I don't know where it where it comes from it's definitely <laughs> from outside of us rather than inside of us um it's I, I think you're doing the right thing for the patient and that's where I think protocols can fail them because many times you have a patient and they're at the end of the road and they come in to me financially. They've been to consultants and doctors and they've been pushed and prodded and poked and sent to this person and that person and everybody's trying to find what's wrong with them. So they've spent so much money at this point that I can't just throw every test under the sun at them. You know, I owe them to try and really filter it down to what is absolutely necessary and what is going to help. Which would, I know you work with high-end athletes, but is there a, you favor more than the other or is it just each case is different? I really like the variety of it all. I have to say, and I, I try to focus and specialize. And then the minute I make that decision, someone comes in with something else. And I guess I could say, no, sorry, I'm not working with that one thing anymore. I'm only working on this thing. But then I feel I haven't helped someone. So my brain likes the bit of figuring it all out and where can we go? rather than just giving diet sheets and prescriptions. So even when it comes to athletes, I like working really intensively with the whole person on their journey and not just strict diets and calorie counting and weight control. It's, it's sort of about everything. But especially with athletes, I like working with fatigue, chronic fatigue, overtraining, or on the flip side with the very, very motivated ones who really want to get into the nitty gritty of sort of periodized nutrition and planning their season with their diet and the emotional support, everything. So I suppose I like more person-person work rather than just here's a diet and write a plan because I find that kind of boring, if I'm honest. <laughs> Why do you find it boring? Because it's just, you're just, you're kind of creating a template and using it the same thing for each person. And I'm more interested in, in the person, like how you know we've worked together it's been a huge journey and it's different every time and it's always moving and adapting. I like that stuff, the, the stuff that is all a bit different, I, I guess. Keeps my brain ticking over. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you got into working with athletes. I guess I've always liked sport and I've always been active. Not at a competitive level because I never had the belief in myself, but I'm always fascinated 
watching everyone around me. And when I came back from England, I was studying sports nutrition and it was one of my mom's friends who phoned me and said, Andrea, I'm picking you up at eight o'clock tomorrow. You're coming to an art gallery opening because Ger Hartman, who's a top physical therapist in Limerick, who's worked with a lot of international and national athletes, was going to be opening this exhibition. I thought, oh man, this is going to be so embarrassing. And she said to me, write your letter. I'll be there at eight. So I didn't have an out. (laughs) (laughs) So I pitched up at the art gallery opening and I was getting, you know, big digs in the ribs. Um, So I went up and introduced myself to Ger. And he just turned to me. He was with another athlete, uh, Susie Hamilton Fava, I think her name is, 400 meter runner. And he said, oh, you're just the person I need to see because he had come back um, from Kona not feeling that well. So he was my first client. And then he sent me my second client, which was Sonia O'Sullivan. So it was really a kind of pinching myself moment. How did I just do this? And it sort of rolled on from there with word. It's always been word of mouth referrals. So that got me into track and fields, which I loved. That those years working with Athletics Ireland were, and the individual athletes like Derval O'Rourke and David Gillick and Sonia and Paul Hessian and Eilish McSweeney and Rob Heffernan, they were amazing. Those guys taught me such an amount. And then at the same time as this was going on, um, another friend picked up the phone <laughs> and he said, Andrea, Monster Rugby needs you. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so he said, I want you to write to them. And I'm like, oh God, here we go again. There I was writing my letter about myself to the IRFU. And every day, Melvin, thank you, Melvin, would phone me. Have you done it yet? Have you done it yet? He said, I'm going to sit on you until you've done it. And I'm thinking, why would they want me? But yet again, he was right. And I ended up with Monster Rugby. Worked with them from 04 until 09. And again, they were big learning years. And I have so much respect for what the team and the individuals taught me. Um, so, yeah, I guess in the world of sports nutrition, I was very lucky. The universe definitely conspired there to bring me some opportunities. What did you learn that time? Where, where do I start with that one? You learn from every person. You're learning how to make it better for them. So you're constantly in the book, studying, learning about what they need, reading the research. But I was also reading bodybuilding magazines, which sounds insane, but there was some really interesting stuff going on in the world of bodybuilding, which effectively a rugby builder is trying to build his body. So I would have looked there as well. I would have been managing things for the guys when it came to their training nutrition, their travel nutrition, their match nutrition. Injury rehabilitation was an area that fascinated me, so often the players would be injured. I have some huge books, as you can see down there, on orthopedics. So if someone came in with a shoulder injury, I would get out all of the medical texts on what's happening when that injury is healing or what's happened in that surgery. And I would add in, because this was sports nutrition for injury was in its infancy back then, so I would take the physical side of what was happening in the body and how it needed to heal and I would take the nutrition theory that I knew and I would try and marry the two together to get that player and you know to give them practical strategies to get them back on the pitch faster so we used to play a bit of a game with it where you know if the player was really on board with wanting to rehab quickly uh, we would try and beat the consultants the the consultant would always give them a date for when they expected them back at play so we try and speed that up somewhat and we usually did 
if the player was motivated with his diet and nutrition, we would speed it up by anything between two weeks and a month to get them back, which was, that was fun. I loved the challenge of that. Um, worked with a few players with um, fatigue, iron issues. I threw myself a lot into learning how to read blood work for athletes, but really from a functional perspective as well as a medical perspective. And there's a lot of clues in blood test work about the health of an athlete. You know, we didn't have the finance to do very sophisticated testing on the athletes. So I would do my best with bloods and worked a bit with Brian Moore on that and learn from him as well. So I found that fascinating also. So yeah, there's, there's probably a million other things. I'm very much a, a person who's in the present. And, you know, when you start me and you get me to think about all the amazing people I've worked with, I really only am conscious of what I'm doing right now, if that makes sense. You're constantly trying to move forward and do your best for the patients that you have at the moment. Um, but I learned a lot from those years. They were good. It sounded like they were. And being in the moment is what everyone's striving to do. And you are in a position, if you're not in the moment, you can't provide the person the best whatever they need for that moment. That's tr so true. Actually, there's, there's one memory that stands out to mind, and that's when um, Donico Callahan and Ronan O'Gara, because they used to car share going up and down from Cork to Limerick. I had to deal with the two of them together. And it was like trying to manage two naughty kids that wouldn't sit down, and they were running all over the place and into the rooms next door where there was a beautician asking Mary to make them a cup of coffee, and I couldn't even get them to sit down. <laughs> so that was fun. <laughs> And like when you see the likes of doping being happened and as a nutrition and a pharmacy, do you feel like there's a better way you could handle it or is it just like athletes would cheat if they had the chance to? I don't. I believe that cheating is a personality thing. I believe there's cheaters in life, in every aspect of life, and there's people that would never, ever consider cheating. And I, hand in my heart, can't say I ever worked with anyone that I was suspicious of. I just saw a lot of hard work. I saw for a lot of athletes that it was very hard financially. So the last thing they were going to be doing was cheating. They were too busy trying to pull everything else together. So maybe I'm naive, but I have a very strong belief system that if you can manage your training properly, so good coaching, listening to your coach, um, being able to communicate with your coach, good lifestyle, good recovery, good nutrition, and then smart use of herbs or supplements when they're needed for specific reasons from quality, quality sources, which is very, very important. I believe that you can achieve a huge amount doing this. And then if you can add on a strong mind, mental skills, uh, strong self-belief, strong self-esteem, you have an athlete that's very well-rounded, very resilient, and you add that to talent and genetics. I believe that you can achieve a lot doing this. But obviously, there's also people out there cheating. Now, can a cheat not doing all of those pieces that I discussed beat someone doing all of those pieces that I discussed who isn't cheating. I don't know, but I like to believe you can. I suppose everyone's watched Icarus and that kind of blew our minds apart onto the reality of things. And I think every day my heart is kind of broken a bit when you see the reality of just how deep doping runs. But I also believe that there are clean athletes out there. I know because I see them and I live with one and I've worked with a lot. And, you know, they embrace when they see drug doping come to their door and or at an event because they can show the world that they are clean. Um, and I think that's inspiring. I don't know how people are going to. It's very, very expensive. Like we, we studied drug doping and how that's done when I was in university. Now, I'm sure it's changed a huge amount. 
obviously I was in college in the 1990s. But I think money is on the side of the cheats, unfortunately. But I think you can't focus on that. If you stand at the start line and you believe that everyone is cheating apart from you, mentally you've just shot yourself. You, you have to believe in everything that you do and not pay attention to everybody else, um, I, I think. Do you get frustrated where the narrative in sport is about cheating than the clean athletes? I don't pay attention. I can't. You just wouldn't keep going. I, I, I focus my time on the study and research and the reading and all the bits of how to do it right, how to understand the athlete, how to understand their psychology, to learn more about natural herbs, which can help support an athlete's immune system so that they can train better and more effectively. So I spend all my time focusing on the positives and every now and again, a story will come my way and you'll read it and you think, oh God, that's, you know, change things a bit, but then you forget it and you get, you move on. But that's my mind everywhere. I prefer to find the silver linings and focus on positive. You said you make up herbs. Is there a particular type of herbs you use? I use pharmaceutical standard um, herbs um, from two supplying companies in England that make exceptional herbs. And I keep a limited range that I try and understand and know well. So mostly adaptogenic herbs, the adaptogens, which are the adrenal herbs, the gut healing herbs, some ones that will help with the immune system I will use. So treatments for coughs and colds and sinus problems and things like that. So I suppose I have about 20 to 30 herbs, maybe 20, I would say. I get to know them as best I can. But out of that realm, I will refer to a herbalist then. But I think herbs are amazing. Um, I'll try and use a lot of Irish herbs or Northern European herbs. Um, I feel they're more suited to us. You know, they're growing outside, a lot of them. <laughs> so they're suited to us and our needs. And I'll try and use them with the seasons as well. And then there's just a few maybe Chinese herbs that I would use, like astragalus as well. Um, I, but I think herbs are wonderful. I use them myself. And if someone is looking to go into it, is there a, when you type in herbs, there's so many, you can go down 10 different avenues. But if someone's just trying to get an idea of, of what it's about, is do you know any way they can find it? Or? I would get information off the internet from exceptional herbalists. There's a few that write very good blogs with very good information. And then I will use PubMed or science websites. So there is quite a lot of peer-reviewed research on PubMed to do with herbs. You need to be a little bit savvy with your search term because herbs will have a common name, they'll have a, science, a botanical name, and then they might have kind of local names. And so you, you kind of need to search using many names to get the information. But also bear in mind that no one behind the herbal industry has the funding to run the same clinical trials to the extent of a pharmaceutical company. Um, some of the clinical studies will be funded by pharmaceutical companies because they're looking to create more drugs or to find out what the active constituents are so you need to look at folklore as well pick up the old books about you know how our ancestors picked and used herbs the native indians as well would have used a lot of herbs that are common to us so i sort of read from all of these aspects as well any herbalist will tell you the best way to know a herb is to spend time with it to sit with it to take it to collect it to prepare it to get to know it um, and then you sort of, you know, herbs are, I see them as live things. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're food and medicine. How did you come across them? 
Oh, I suppose as a child, I've always been fascinated by things in nature. Dad would have taken us for walks down the fields and we would have collected things and berries and I would have made more cooking things related to the herbs that we have. So the fascination has always been there. We would have studied herbal medicine in pharmacy a little bit. Cannabis, mostly. That was fun. We extracted cannabis in the labs. That was a smelly, fun lab. Um, we also studied herbal medicine in nutrition. Um, so I suppose it's always been there. You're just trying to learn more. But I will always stand back when I feel that this needs more expertise than I have. So I've been taught how to research and I have had the resources to learn about herbs, but a herbalist is the person that I would refer to if it goes any further in depth. And with herbs, you need to have a lot of respect because there can be interactions with medicines. So if someone's on a medication, I will spend a lot of time researching how a herb is metabolized and whether that can interfere with the metabolism of a drug. Um, we need, you, need, you need to be careful. Like every, everything deserves respect. Our food, our medicine, our herbs, our supplements, they're not just things that we can just throw in and hope for the best. You need to be a little bit smart about it all. You have this massive suitcase of aromatherapy. Tell us about how you came across aromatherapy once. A lot of what I have in the clinic has come to me intuitively where I feel I need to have these in the clinic for my patients to benefit them. And then I go, oh no, that's going to cost a lot of money. But my heart tells me you need to do that. Because aromatherapy is massively healing for patients and I will use the oils with patients when I'm doing healing work or if they're doing a session on the PEMF, which is a, an energy healing device. It's been an accumulation of products for patients, I suppose. <laughs> but I use, I use them myself. I think they're very powerful. At the moment, I'm using them in steam inhalations for my sinuses. I think, you know, a herb can't get into... Well, I herb wash my sinuses too, but taking things orally, sometimes you need the aromatherapy, which will... as a better option because it will get there quicker. Also, our sense of smell will we'll have a direct brain effect, also a direct lung effect, and applying aromatherapy oils, things get into the circulation very quickly. So it's like creating a toolbox and having options for, for people. Um, so that's why I have so many aromatherapy oils from good, good companies. What you buy generally in the shops isn't good enough quality. Um, I would look at companies like Young Living, which I use, doTERRA, Resource Natural, Vibrant Blue Oils, and I've picked up another, oh, Phoebe Aromatics. So I've sort of accumulated things over the years. Um, and the same with, as you can see, um, crystals. I know they do something, but if you asked the scientist in me, I'd probably struggle a little bit. <laughs> but stones, rocks, gemstones definitely have an energy. And I think everybody knows that because I would say there's very few people that come back from the beach without a stone in their hand. We just know they're doing something for us on some vibrational level. So I have a lot of crystals in the room as well. Yeah, it's like when you go to the beach, it's like this, you've been grounded or some energetic thing that happens, probably the same crystals. Yeah. Explain to us what the PEMF machine is. PEMF is short for Pulsed Electromagnetic Wave Frequency Therapy. Um, it's a pulsed frequency. The technology originates from Eastern Europe and Russia, where it would have been used a lot. Research is gathering for its benefit in a lot of areas, but most of the research has been done in fatigue, cancer, and bone and injury regeneration. Um, what we believe is that these pulsed, pulsed frequencies are providing the body with energy that will help the mitochondria and 
So then the body is sort of self-healing. It has more of a supply of energy. Um, I'm not great to explain this. I, I, it's funny because my brain when I was younger was I could just quote everything verbatim as science. And now everything is a take-home message to make it simple, if that makes sense. But the PEMF I first saw when I was in the States, actually, and they had very powerful devices on display at a, a medical seminar. So powerful that when you sat under them, your whole body was kind of reverberating with the stories and the research that I was being shown was amazing. And I thought, I need this for my patients to help them. Uh, and then I heard the price tag <laughs> and I came running home. <laughs> but then I, I, it, stood, it, it kind of stuck in the back of my mind and I continued my research. Um, Dr. Paulock um, is a great source of unbiased in information on the internet. And I discovered that the technology originated in Europe and that the lower frequencies are more effective and those devices are actually far more affordable so I invested in a product which I now have in the clinic for patients to use just as a standalone but when a, a patient is injured or going through fatigue I would rather see them more often um, and even though they recommend you need to use it frequently and every day I do feel that single sessions do create a benefit for people that's how the PEMF ended up in here. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned something about simple, you know, like if we type in nutrition or, you know, supplements, we're just this huge volume of choices. Do you think simplicity is far more better? It's insane, the abundance of opinion um, and arguing that goes on in nutrition the abundance of research and information it's very different to when I first studied nutrition the extremes the fads the cycles you know high carb low carb this that and the other I think the practicality of what we need to do to eat well nourish ourselves and heal has never changed you know food is food we need to eat pure good wholesome unprocessed food balanced seasonal local the research has grown in abundance and yet at the same time it's not really telling us to do anything very much different it's just giving us more of the details it is creating extremes because a lot of sensationalism will be around nutrition research and then it's taken out of context so it, it might you know an example would be when they started to study vitamin c Vitamin C can help as anti-cancer, it's an antioxidant. But when they did research on vitamin C in a test tube, they found that it creates free radicals, therefore it can cause cancer. And then everyone's up in arms. The, the conclusion is vitamin C causes cancer. But you did the study in a test tube with vitamin C in isolation. And I don't know a fruit called vitamin C. I know a fruit that gives you lots of different antioxidants and foods that sort of combine everything together in the natural symphony. So I think research is amazing and it's giving us more information, but the basics of what we need to do haven't really changed. I think if you leave the research to the experts, but if you focus your own energy on just trying to nourish yourself well, trying to source food well, trying to be ethical, trying to support learning about what foods are seasonal, how can I you know, get good quality salmon, for example, which is, you know, focus your energies on the doing rather than what we tend to see in our modern day is people just fighting tooth and nail about nutrition on Facebook. 
putting all of their energy into trying to prove a certain belief system rather than putting their energy into doing something practical. <laughs> you know, like I'm sitting here every day trying to unravel through the research and I have a background to understand it and put a bit of context in it. And it's funny because last weekend I spent hours doing some research into nutrition and at the end of it I thought, wow, go me. I just spent several hours reading clinical papers all weekend. And then I thought, well, actually, I didn't really learn anything to tell anyone that's any different from what I knew before I sat. You know, it's, it's interesting. Like, we know so far in depth in the body, all of the biochemical pathways and what's going on. But the take-home is still actually really simple. It's like you go to an orchestra and you have the wind, the string, the piano. It's the same with food. You've all these sympathy that do all different things. Yeah, you can sit back and listen to the music. Sort yeah, of thing. <laughs> yeah. Food kind of has that. If you pair it back to the simplest form, you know, like something like blueberries, you can have ten different things, but it's a blueberry. Yeah. And people get confused because of the fact that I need to have this or that. Does this look like? Yeah, it gets crazy. Like that's a good example with the blueberry because. You know, blueberries were an in thing. They've probably gone out now, but they were an in thing in the last couple of years. So everyone was spending a fortune on blueberries that probably had a lot of air miles. They, they they do grow in Ireland, actually. We have wild blueberries up in the mountains. Most people don't know that. But that regular blueberry, um, you wouldn't see so much. So people are there spending a fortune on blueberries that have probably traveled a, a long way and that have probably been sprayed a lot because blueberries are good for them. And no one's standing back and going, oh, it's the purple pigment in the blueberry. I can get that in red cabbage. I can get that in the skin of an aubergine. I can get that in a red onion. So the blueberry is really good, but there are also other foods that can do this, have that similar compound. Another example is beet juice. So there's some fascinating research on beets, which provide nitrates, which can help with oxygen dynamics, which is helpful for athletes that do endurance. And it's also helpful for, for example, cardiovascular patients. But that same nitrate compound is also in rocket, watermelon, I think, and a couple of other leafy greens. So you see, industry will push us one way. So when it finds out that the beet has this component in it, it will create a product. Then that product will market to us, and then we're in, hook, line, and sinker. It's all about the beet. But we forget that when we eat our rocket salad that we're getting it in too. So we don't have to keep running out and buying the product that industry has just created off the back of the research that has been done. We can step back from the research and think, oh, that's interesting. How can I do that in food? And that's where we tend to go wrong. We're always in on the next fad and the next product. Um, when you see superfood being titled with food, does that frustrate you? Sometimes, yeah. I think, you know, food can be very elitist and superfoods can be very expensive. So the whole conversation will be, oh, and I went and bought my goji berries and I have my goji berry salad. And I think, well, how many normal people that may not be earning that much money that also need to be taking care of their health, how many of those people can afford goji berries? We need to be showing them the foods that are native and available and affordable for the masses that are also really healthy for us. But again, it's this big industry, this big machine. You know, we need to write newspaper articles. We need to write magazine articles, blogs. We need to sell products. And we're all getting hooked in and we're creating this elitist approach to food when, you know, cabbage is a superfood in Ireland. <laughs> it's just, it's boring. <laughs> but it's it's, you know, the herbs, the berries that are, you know, we can pick for free in the, in the autumn. 
they are our superfoods effectively and they've been created by mother nature to help protect and nourish the population and that's the old ways like the old wise tales go and pick your nettles in the spring go harvest your nettle seeds in the autumn go get your elderberries and your blackberries they're the true superfoods and we forget that it just shows you that you know we've advanced in the modern of technology but yet it's the old ancient ways that are coming and are more valuable than what we see today you know really valuable and really simple um, and we don't need to be jumping around about it, you know. We just need to keep this information available for everyone. But someone will create a marketing system calling themselves ancient food systems and then everyone's in on the fat again. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's hilarious. It's just, I, I think each one of us should get curious. You know, we need to find what foods are we drawn to? What is our body saying for healing? You know, we, we, we have a huge drive within us to search for for what we need and if we listen you know we'll know that some days we're looking for this other days we're looking for protein other days you know you you might notice in the in the shop a certain food is catching your attention your body is saying yeah that's good for me and we need to play with it and get curious and be fluid and dynamic and about you know nourishing ourselves finding what works for us i know you spend a lot of time in nature is there particular trees you like or plants you like looking at all the time Oh, they call at different times. Like, I was quite sick a few months ago, and I just knew I had to go and climb halfway up Keeper Hill and find myself some lichen to make a tincture out of. So tincture became my, or the lichen became my my thing at that time. And then it could be a beech or an oak. And someone told me recently that the ash trees are dying out in Europe. And I was upset by that, because I think the ash trees are a beautiful tree representing... Each tree represents something, and the old Celtic um, Ogham will, will say the same. Um, and for me, ash tree is a very important tree for Ireland. But apparently, they're all they're all going to die from a, a fungus that's growing on them that's causing the ash trees to to die. They're actually not going to survive this. But at the same time, when I was reading more about this story that I'd just been told, I thought to myself, well, that fungus is very powerful. I wonder, is there a medicine in that? So I think our curiosity as humans can drive us to find new medicines and things as well. But is there one favorite one? Gorse. If I was to say one, it would be gorse. Yeah, I think. Because that reminds me of my granny. And it's always blooming. But apart from that, uh, no, I love love it all. Talk about the crystals and the beach and being grounding. When you go to nature, you find it kind of gives you that that energy boost. Yeah, nature is essential for me. I've I've learned that. Like yesterday, I went off and did a two-hour cycle. And many people from the outside might say, well, good for you. And isn't that selfish? And why aren't you at work? <laughs> and I'm like, I am working. I'm, I'm outside grinding. I'm outside slowing my thoughts down. I'm, I'm making myself present. I'm, I'm learning. I'm noticing. I'm creating an empty space so that the stresses all dissipate so that when my next patient comes, I'm in the best place possible for them. And sometimes even I'll have intuitions when I'm out there in nature. I'll get a lot of nudges about writing or the things that I need to next learn. So I would say it's essential for all of us, actually. And I would say at the times in my life when I have been out of balance mentally and physically, that has been the times when I haven't been as connected to nature. Why do you think we connect to nature? Is it to do with the soul or energy? or? I think there's a life force. I think Mother Earth is alive. I think we're, we're all connected. Like those trees, they make our oxygen half, over half of the year that help us. 
you know, we wouldn't be here without the trees, the whole ecosystem. Nature provides medicine, food. Everything is sentient, I think. You know, animals, they're connected to us too. I think we're all part of a big complex web and we all need one another. And I think if we kill our planet, which we are, we're killing ourselves slowly. But we need to change what we're doing. But nature is crucial. I, I see it just as a whole thing that's alive. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny. Nature changes. We change. You know, like we come into you playing like A, B, and C. And over time, that will change. Kind of like the way you plant a seed and plants will grow into a, a tree or a flower or whatever. Mm-hmm. Being in nature and providing the observations and the quietness, is that easy for you to bring to the clinic? Yeah. It's like... I've just been given a whole boost of life force that can flow through me to help other people. That's where I like doing the healing work the most, and it's probably the area that people know me the least for. It comes with me and through me, I I guess, as it can for all of us. But also, you know, we know the sun gives us vitamin D. It's crucial for life. We know it helps regulate our pineal gland and our our day-night cycles. Um, the sun also is believed to have antiviral activities, they're telling us lately. Our earth frequencies, similar to PEMF, grounding, earthing, is absolutely crucial for us. Um, there is more positive ionic state when we're around trees, running water. There's energy in it, in it all that I believe is crucial for us. And I think part of why we're so unhealthy as a, as a society is there's such a big disconnect with what's actually important for us. And I think if the financial crash did one thing, it actually forced people back outside into nature again. And I think that's one thing that people have maintained. You see people out running, you see people out walking. If I go up onto Keeper Hill at the weekend, you know, when I was young, there was no one up there, just me and a dog or a horse or on my feet or on a bike. And now, you know, there's people on their pilgrimage to the top of Keeper. There's, they know it's essential for them. They may not know how or why, but there's so many more people outside in nature, which is, it's amazing. And they're happy and you say hello and everyone has an exchange. And that makes people feel good because it provides connection. So it's the one thing, you know, I think if we got out more, there would be less issues. <laughs> and we would be able to connect back to ourselves, which is scary for a lot of people because we're afraid to connect into ourselves and hear our own voice. In fact, m- many would say hearing our own voice is it's a disorder. There shouldn't be more than one voice in our head. <laughs> there's there's a, a wisdom and an energy that we can connect to when we're out in nature. And I would say to everybody, just get out there. Find your place, whether it's the sea, the mountains, the rivers, the lakes, the sand. Go find your place. Are you happy the way your journey twists and turns to, to bring you where you are now? Well, the answer is yes. But when I'm in the shit, so to speak which I seem to be in a lot. I seem to learn in my life through experience. I would say, well, it's not the best fun. But I've learned very quickly now in any situation, as best I can, I'm only human, to take a step back and go, what am I learning here? What is this bringing to me? And it's kind of funny because I find that when I come through something, then a patient walks in and they'll start telling me their story. And I'm like, whoa, that just happened to me. It's almost like I'm just one step ahead to help others. So I guess I'm quicker now on it to think, well, what am I learning here? What can I learn here? How can I flip this around? How can I remain positive? 
I mean, there's always going to be times when it's only natural to feel sorry for yourself, to feel frustrated, to feel sad, to feel demotivated. But it's when you're in that place, face down on the floor, that you learn the biggest lessons. Like, failure is crucial. And I think if we were taught that in school, if someone gave a lecture on, you're going to mess it up multiple times in your life, that's where you learn great things, I think we'd all be easier on ourselves instead of going through weeks and months or years of feeling like failure. We go, okay, here's my learning opportunity. I'm not a failure. I'm just failing to learn. I think that would be valuable. It's part of human nature to be incredibly hard on yourself and to feel like you're not good enough and you didn't get it right and then the self-judgment start and then when you can't handle all those self-judgments, you'll throw them those judgments on other people and everybody else is doing it wrong and no one's getting it right. But ultimately, if you're doing your best and I hand in my heart feel I do my best, sometimes I feel like do it a bit faster, but there's me judging myself. Um, you got to work with what we got. You have a, a really, you always say play with it. Is that something that you do with yourself if you're learning something or experimenting something, you just play with it and see what happens? Yeah, it's like lessons that are come and go and you're kind of in it. And I'll try and see it from a couple of dimensions. Like if it's something to do with science, I'll try and learn it that way. And then I'll try and apply intuition. And then I'll try and just not think and throw it out to the universe. You know, I do a lot of writing and journaling and I'll ask for the answers because I'm, you know, I'm not as smart as the wisdom that's out there. So I can try and be smart and learn it and mold it and write it and create it. Or I can go, oh, someone's just giving me this from... I don't know, that space, the ethers, the, what do they call it? That out there. <laughs> but someone is like, th th that great divine wisdom, that's smarter than all of us. I think most of the greats of our time, the inventors, the, the people that pull together knowledge in a way that had never been done before, I think every single one of them says that it came from an outside space. And I think that outside space is around all of us. And I think that if we can allow that come to us, we can make 2 plus 2 equal 10 instead of trying to learn all the 2 plus 2s to get to 10. Andrea, I want to say thank you for taking the time to chat to you and see what's happening in your little world. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for listening to The Aaron O'Dowd Show. Where the world's best stories are told. If you like, please post a review or subscribe to the show. To find out more, contact us at aaronodowd.com. That's A-R-O-N-O-D-O-W-D.com. We're always ready to share another magnificent tale from the world's best storytellers. You. So stay tuned. And rock on.